I really think that he is a an arsonist firefighter. That's a, a term I'm stealing from somebody where he needs to create an incredible disaster in order to be able to save it. It's just how he's wired. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, December 4th, which means it's Media Monday. Today, I'm joined by John Kelly to talk about Elon Musk's latest public outburst, telling ex-advertisers to, quote, go F yourself. Is he being strategic in some way, or is he just being Elon? We also take a look at the layoffs hitting Condé Nast and why some titles at the media company are doing better than others. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ains. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. If it's Monday, it's, of course, Media Monday. I'm joined today by John Kelly. John, our mutual friend, Sean Mills, and his wife just got a new Golden Retriever puppy. Uh, I'm curious if uh, this will change your attitudes towards dogs. Oh, well, it won't actually. Um, Rebecca was with Gabrielle last night and saw the dog, saw the, they have a book on their kitchen table about being new dog owners. They're taking this very, very seriously. <laughs> and um, and she said to both of them, you will never see my husband ever again. So um, <laughs> you, you have your you have your answer uh, right there. But uh, sorry, you know, no one's perfect. I don't know. I, from what I've seen and gathered, Gabrielle's as in on, on the dog as Sean is. This is, uh, for people not listening, this is uh, Montclair, New Jersey gossip. But <laughs> this is actually a funny story. Back in 2018, I had just come back from picking up uh, our beloved dog, Boone. And I was sitting in my Jeep in Venice, California, USA. I think you were, you had left Vanity Fair, left Condé, and I think you were sort of noodling in your brain about like what was next and it was the very early germs of puck and you were sort of sure. telling me to you know let's let's keep talking like i want to do something cool i forget the exact language anyway one of the things you said to punctuate that conversation was or begin the conversation rather was why would you get a dog like why would you want to live with like a <laughs> mammal in your house it's disgusting so anyway i just outed john kelly on the pod as a as a dog hater uh we'll see if it's true changed. oh man i know uh, don't at me but wait peter uh, to, to be self-referential one last time i'm excited i'm going to see you in a couple of days at our pal uh joe and jill's house That's what right. are you wearing you have, a, you, have a, you have an outfit planned out i'm wearing a suit I, I was thinking about wearing like uh, this is the one of the White House holiday parties that John and I are attending. I was thinking about like a new kind. I need like a Christmassy kind of tie, and I would never wear like hmm. a like a gaudy like Christmas tree tie or anything. But 
Yeah. What, what's like, what do you, what do you wear to a Christmas party? Like a burgundy kind of tie, like a dark green tie with like a blue suit. Anyway, if anyone's listening, please, please add me. I would love ideas on ties for holiday parties. It's weird. Well, you, you do a good job of still looking like uh, an Angelino in Washington, in, in my experience. I feel like most people um, come to Washington and if they have to dress up for something, they just look like they're they're at the Model UN, you know, but uh, but not you, sir. You've been on the West Coast <laughs> long enough that um, you're still a stylish guy. No, no reptile, no, you know, bucks. Um, it's uh, I'll, I'll be I'll be trying to channel you. Uh, I won't mention the shitstorm that Dylan stirred up like last year, I think, by describing Washington like as a town like clad in Brooks Brothers or something. And everyone was like, what are you? Shut up, man. You don't know anything that's, about D.C. <laughs> that's the apotheosis. That's the, the best version of it. I mean, Ann Taylor and, um, and Jake. I mean, anyway, we, we could go on, but people want to show here. Well, speaking of fashion statements, Elon Musk showed up to the New York Times Dealbook Summit in um, a pretty fresh shearling jacket uh, for his interview with Andrew <laughs> Ross Sorkin. I don't know if he was like hopped up on Adderall getting off the plane from Israel or whatever, but oh boy, he uh he 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 brought the heat. And by now everyone listening to this knows what Elon Musk said. He he sort of at one point, you know, apologized for his tweet that agreed with the anti-Semitic statement. But another point in the conversation, he basically said all the advertisers that have pulled back from Twitter IBM, Apple, Disney were blackmailing him for money, which is a mischaracterization, I think, of what's actually yeah. happening. And he told them to go fuck yourself. Go <laughs> fuck yourself. He also mistakenly called Andrew Ross Sorkin uh, my friend Jonathan. <laughs> and Andrew had to be like, my name is Andrew, bro. What do you make of this, man? You know, I mean, Teddy in the in the Slack had, a, I think, a take that I agree with, which is just that like, He's just being Elon. Like this is of a piece of all of his other statements. He just shoots from the hip. He's unpredictable. He likes stirring the pot. Bill has said on this podcast and in his his writing for Puck that he thinks Elon is intentionally actually trying to mm-hmm. drive down the price so he can maybe buy the debt on the cheap or something. Yep. I don't speak finance like Bill does. But what do you, what do you make of this? Was there a strategy here, or was he just like Looney Tunes? Well, there definitely is no strategy with him. I, I think that the um, it, it's like the the Trump conversation from 2015, 16. You know, there, there's a there's this unchained id that people are uncomfortable with and have really it's unprecedented. And some people, uh, some observers, cultural observers, I suppose, try to formulate it in a highfalutin way, extract gleans of a, a strategy in there. Well, I don't think that's the case. Here were my impressions when I think Matt first put it in the Slack. One, I thought that. He looked like Kara Swisher had a baby with Top Gun era Tom Cruise. Like, very, very weird. He, I don't know if he was medicated or he um, has had some, you know, recent cosmetic work done, but he looks different, very, very different yeah. to, to yeah. me. And and Galloway has been early on this point. I think that he he's, like, fundamentally going through the most visible midlife crisis multiplied by 172 billion dollars that, that we've ever seen and, and, and has a, a level of narcissism that like an, a napoleon level of narcissism like like completely um, historically unprecedented and I, I feel bad for for andrew who's like you know who's sort of a, a conflict averse lovely guy jonathan i should call him um so he he did a good job reading him in but i think and I'm building on the Freudian theory we discussed last week. I really think 
that he is a an arsonist firefighter. That's a, a term I'm stealing from somebody where he needs to create an incredible disaster in order to be able to save it. It's just how he's wired. And he bought a company whose revenue is entirely dependent on advertising. He hired a, a, a CEO who everyone, you know, now everyone is trashing Linda Yaccarino um, mm-hmm. uh, and say she's not a real CEO. She's just a global salesperson. In fact, actually not even a global salesperson. I had an interesting conversation earlier in the week where I was reminded, oh, that she actually didn't have a global footprint at Comcast. She was a sort of North American uh, seller. Anyway, these are distinctions that may not matter to everyone, but he is absolutely trying to crater his company and make her job a, truly a living hell in order to, I presume, mount such extraordinary pressure on himself that he can somehow save the day. Of course, this is not blackmail. These are decisions that come down to businesses trying to extract value from a platform and trying to protect their brands here. And mm-hmm. it was interesting watching him work himself into an extraordinary lather about this, uh, you know, seemingly um, he he needs to do this, but I don't discount, I don't think it's his strategic purpose, but I don't discount Bill's point. And Bill was early and often on this, Mm -hmm. that there's about $13 billion-ish in debt that's owned by a syndicate of Wall Street banks based on the sale price of Twitter marked down to, you know, where, where the debt would trade today. It's probably trading at 50%. No one wants this debt. They got they have to get it off their their books at some point. Who is going to buy this? A financial investor like Apollo, you know, who mm-hmm. thinks, "Hey, this is a chance to get your teeth into a company." And the other possibility is Elon Musk. And who will play a little bit more for it? Probably Elon. So this is a, a way I presume to to wholly own the company, have no no outside investors and whether he intended it to play out this way or not, I think this is absolutely where we're headed. Uh, Linda Yaccarino wrote in a, in a statement after the event, after the Dealbook event, she said, quote, X is enabling an information independence that is uncomfortable for some people. <laughs> X is standing at a unique and amazing intersection. <laughs> unique and amazing. Oh, my God. People don't know how to write. Unique and amazing intersection of free speech and Main Street. And the X community is powerful and here to welcome you. I mean, they're at the intersection of free speech and Toilet Avenue. I Like, they're not at the intersection yeah. of Main Street. You well, know, two, I laughed when like, I read that, I think Peter. they've lost tens of millions of, of users since they've started. And even before then, Twitter was fractional <laughs> compared to, you know, the U.S. population. I assume intentionally she used that metaphor because that was how Steve Jobs famously opened uh, Apple keynotes, that that, that Apple's products were at the intersection of, you know, I think liberal arts and something else, you know, arts and science, arts and technology. That was sort of how he positioned the company um, Hmm. when when they were developing the iPod to to marry technology with, with how he lived. And 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 maybe um, poor Linda was thinking that, too. But. I um, again, I'm I'm not a mind reader here, but I assume that she's in this job because she she feels like there's no way out, and she's probably uh, afraid of the litigation that would ensue if she left, and that she maybe you know that, that she's you, you almost want to say like blink twice, Linda, like is, is there is there <laughs> a life or activity going on inside there? Because um, it, it seems like whatever sort of potion he's drinking, he's he's passed on to her. And you, you just made a, a great point that, like, is so underappreciated in all this. Who needs this? 
who needs this? You know, yeah. this is this is not um, Twitter's story, which it told to the world and to the investment community for years, was of the global town square. I know what you and Conroy think about this, but but the, the Arab Spring, etc. Like it was a way for people to connect. You know what we learned from the global town square? Everyone hates everyone. We don't we don't want to connect <laughs> with anyone anymore. We want to, we want to talk to people who believe in you know or have have similar values and mores and 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 are probably at, at similar intellectual planes. Mm-hmm. And this is like uh, basically um, taking a bath in Craigslist, you know, so it just it <laughs> seems like they, they sort of um, they overcooked uh, the meal pretty significantly. Yeah, that's right. That's right. John, I want to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to ask you about layoffs at your former stopping grounds, Condé Nast. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Powers of Be, everybody. It's Media Monday. It's me and John Kelly. John, a new round of layoffs happened Thursday, last Thursday at Condé Nast. Also at Vox Media, we should mention, this had been announced earlier, but the layoffs actually were underway last week. Uh, our boy Dylan reported that the layoffs will affect staffers at The New Yorker. Uh, and he pointed out that seems pretty rare. I'd love your take on that. Mm-hmm. Um, Vanity Fair, which is being hit particularly hard, uh, and most other brands slash titles. Actually, let me. here's a provocative way to get into this. Hmm. Why would you lay people off at Vanity Fair, but like usually like not the New Yorker. Um, like, what's the difference between those two brands, like both financially, reputationally at this point? Uh, good question. There there are a, a number, actually. And um, this is, uh, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of pals in this, so I'm trying to be sensitive. Uh, I think that, you know, we're taping this and, and publishing on a Monday. I think the layoffs of Vanity Fair are happening uh, today, this very Monday. And the New Yorker ones were, uh, were doled out last week. So zooming out, Connie Nass is a company with 5,400 people. It's so much bigger than people realize. And it's incredibly privately held. So it's, it's so privately held that I'm not even sure sometimes that the, um, the most senior executives actually know what's going on there. They, they may attend some of the board meetings and present. Uh, you know, there are a lot of new houses on the, on the payroll now. Um, the new houses have had this, you know, in the family since since Sam and and Mitzi bought it, and, and you know, in I guess like the fifties, put it together, gave it to Cy. So it's really like linked up with the the family now, and um, I assume it makes about two billion dollars a year in in global revenue. 
and there are full-time employees, and then there are um, 1099 contract employees. I think the New Yorker is filled with a lot of both. And what's happening there now is that when they were building their digital business uh, under uh, Nick Thompson, who's now the, the CEO of The Atlantic, they hired a lot of writers who, um, you know, The New Yorker completely favored the print product, even uh, though uh-huh. that was always sort of, I mean, the, the, the knock was these things just piled up, but the, the New Yorker's reputation is, is that they hire the greatest writers in the world. Um, you and I both know that's not true. Uh, but David cared about the magazine. David didn't really care about the website. He definitely didn't care, I should say. He didn't, 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 you know, or wanted someone else to, to manage that. Nick did it. They hired a zillion people. And I think over time they realized after uh, significantly growing up a powerful subscription business based on both the print and digital product, the print success in the New Yorker is, is baked into some of those numbers there too. Um, uh-huh. That there were that, that there were there was a lot of uh, sort of scatter spray that they were publishing that was having not only no impact on the uh, digital subscription business, but also I think it was either de minimis to negative, and um, and there was probably a cost issue. Now the New Yorker. One must remember, um, they, they elevated the New Yorker from a brand positioning standpoint, from being something that was sort of dusty and tweedy and it wasn't read by titans of industry. And it, was, it wasn't a, a, a business tool to being a luxury product and good on them for doing that. But the majority of the revenue comes from subscriptions. So I think that it's very clear that they must have missed a projection and that's probably why mm. they're, they're doing this cutting. Um, no one likes to see anyone lose their job, but, but one must also remember that people who are running these companies are looking at this as house cleaning in many ways too, that um, yeah. if the New Yorker is not as profitable as they want it to be, or if it missed its, its revenue forecast, that they want to be able to have an excuse to make these cuts. I'm not trying to get in anyone's heads, but this is, um, layoffs are often perceived as a tragedy, you know, within circles of, of, of journalists and friends and, but, you know, within executive suites and, and, um, and within Wall Street, if this were a, a public company, yeah. they would probably uh, recognize that management made a really, really tough call. Now, I think on the, the Vanity Fair side, and I take, obviously, um, no joy in this. I have a lot of friends there, and I worked at that, that place twice and loved every second of it. Yeah. And I think that Vanity Fair's business is betwixt and between. I think it's about $40 million a year. Now, that's the number I heard. And, you know, when Graydon was operating it in the heyday, it was like $200 million plus. Um mm. Uh, if I got that wrong, he'll he'll email me, but I, th- I think that's about right. So it's gotten a lot smaller, and it's still a luxury brand. It still publishes a magazine 10-ish times a year and, and can attract fashion advertising, but it, not as much as it used to, clearly. And The Hive, which I created a number of years ago, was designed to build a subscription business of Vanity Fair, which I think was underinvested in, and I think the strategy wasn't always nailed. It it turned into more of a news blog than mm. uh, an entity that made information that people will pay for. You know, I, I think mm-hmm. that there's, you know, p- part of the challenge was uh, the integration at, at Condé Nast. The product sat really far away from the brand, so insights yeah. that were obvious took months to move between the creative people and and um, the engineers and 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 the executives and salespeople. So I think that was a challenge and. I think that you will see a lot of big names announced later today at Vanity Fair. And that's really a tragedy. You know, it didn't have to be this way. And the other sort of sadder reality is Connie Nass, as I said before, it's a 5,000 plus person company. You know, we're talking about like 5% of the company is getting laid off. And I don't know if they think it's as big a deal as people in our industry do. I think that, you know, we, we see this as sort of um, really uh, the true sunsetting of some of the, the real glory of that place. 
I have a I have a take that might be wrong, and this is me coming from the like audience side of things uh, and the consumer side of things, and not the business. But like, I grew up in a Vanity Fair household. It's one reason I started to care about journalism. Like, I'd be in like mm-hmm. like road trips sure. in my mom and dad's car. I'd read every page of Vanity Fair, and I today subscribe at home to the New Yorker. I'm obviously like a college elite blue bubble dweller <laughs> puck employee like but I love the New Yorker even though every now and then I get an issue and it's full of like articles about like flutes or like you know a sparrow <laughs> um and like I'm like pass but uh you know they do really good shit and like the Vanity Fair stopped for me feeling essential from a content perspective and I might not be the the target audience at this point but I, like I remember being again at my parents' house like a few years ago and like Rita Ora was on the cover of Vanity Fair. <laughs> and like, I was like, yeah. do my parents even know who this is? Like, I barely know who this is. And I listened well, to who I think Barbara Streisand is on the cover now. So maybe what's okay, old Okay, well, that's sort of what I'm asking. Know. It's like, you know, it, it, not that this is good. And, and obviously, like, stars change and, and culture changes and, and media companies need to evolve to like adjust to changing tastes. But like, the core audience of Vanity Fair that like, wants to read about the Royals. Are they going to even like open the magazine with Rita Ora on the cover? Like it just, I don't know. It just feels like they made a shift to sort of, I don't know, like catering to the sort of like New York magazine, the cut style audience uh, and, and like Dude, maybe lost touch you, with like the people in La Jolla. <laughs> you nailed it. Look, let me, uh, uh, you know, I obviously have thoughts on this. You know, you, you know how much uh, time I've spent with Graydon and, and truly, you know, I learned this from being around him, especially as, as a very, very young man. Mm-hmm. I remember once when I worked for him, you know, like early, early days, he was in a beautiful old office in four times square, the office mm-hmm. that they filmed that uh, first episode of succession in. And I remember oh, I him in, in, Oh yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Oh, Beachwood, uh, wraparound desk, stunning. And he, remember he was in a meeting with someone and he said, I'm running a business. And <laughs> that stuck with me because I hadn't had those sort of, newsroom experience early in my career that a lot of other people did where journalism was a non-economic entity. I mean, you know, Graydon was a businessman. He was a, he was a, a CEO. He was, he was creating a cultural product that assuaged a number of economic necessities, you know, bringing in essential readers from the fashion and film industry in particular, and from the finance industry and, and, and luxury, and also using that as a, as a license every now and then to, to publish work that he just loved, you know, to sort of satisfy the literary part of him. But it was a business, and it relied on, on having incredible saturation and penetration with key opinion formers. Uh-huh. And when he left, that went away. And I think that there was a, and I want to be polite about this because I think everyone involved in this is a, is a lovely person, but there was a feeling that Vanity Fair was elite and there was a deliberate attempt yeah. to bring it down market. And I always thought that word elite was was misguided and, and foolish, really. What Vanity Fair was, was a cultural touchstone, using that word again, that helped people understand their world. It helped them do their job. It was essential to them. Your parents were journalists. They read this because it helped them do their job. And, mm. it, and it also opened up adjacent worlds to them. And it was an amazing commercial tool. They, you know, they, they probably were, were psychedelically aware of Carolina Herrera, you know, bracelets or, or you know, Armani perfume or something that, that they wouldn't have been otherwise uh, marketed towards. And 
it had a purpose. It had a business purpose. And I think that that just went away. And I also think that it was, and this is no one's fault, really. It isn't, other than senior leadership and, and you know, Graydon left as right before there was a major CEO change. Condé Nast, unlike other companies, insured for a very long time during the Cy Newhouse era that the editors were business people. They mm. were competitive as hell with each other. They were running multi-hundred million dollar BUs and they were told to do that. And they were incentivized to do that. In later years, when the business started to crater and it just started to change, all the momentum moved over to the sales side of the organization. Mm. And I think that the, the lead creators were sort of patted on the head and told, just do what you can do, make it relevant, make it great. Let let you know, let's let's see if we can succeed on Instagram. And it took away the uh, the expertise of you know and, and you know of and the vision of the, the key editorial people. And you, you look at no no further than Hollywood or the fashion industry to see that creative executives are what drive these extraordinary multi billion dollar uh, organizations. And I think that um, kicking that leg out of the stool, I think, is is what changed everything. Um, I need to correct myself. I actually went and Googled. It wasn't Rita Ora. She was on the cover of Vanity Fair Italy. I don't know why that oh, was in my go. head. But the, the, my point stands, though. I mean, like, the subject matter shifted in, in recent years. And I, I just wonder if it was mismatched to the tastes of the previous Vanity Fair audience that was maybe a lifelong subscriber. I don't know. Um, that's oh, I'm, Well, there's no question that there are many people who who think that you're completely right. Um, and I think that there is, it's absolutely, you know, the, the, the kind of argument will be that they made it younger and woker and, hmm. and that they, you know, reach new audiences. But I think that if you, if you look at the, the cold hard facts of it, I mean, from the, the 200 to 40 million decline, they didn't have a business strategy. Right, right. All right, John. Thanks for your insights as always. Have a great week and I will send you uh, links to rescue puppies uh, as soon as we get off this recording. All right. See you in the White House, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.